I am so excited because today we actually get to start the story of David. Uh, two weeks ago we started with, with Hannah bringing forth the prophet Samuel. And we talked about how God was intervening in Israel's history to bring about redemption through his kingdom. And then last week we looked at Samuel, or I'm sorry, Saul. Uh, we'll start with us. I get those mixed up here a little bit. And Saul, his rise, but also then his rejection as king, because he would not listen to God. Now, in chapter 15, the chapter right before we're going to be looking at especially, there is um, a, a theme, a motif that runs through it. They didn't bring out real fully last week, but it's, it's good now to kind of look at it because we're going to see something different in chapter 16. The, the motif, the idea running through chapter 15 was the idea of listening, was the idea of listening. So God speaks to Samuel, Samuel listens. Samuel speaks to Saul, and Saul listens to him, but then he does not listen to him because he does not obey the entire word. And uh, God sent him on a mission to destroy the Amalekites, the enemies of God's people, and uh, not spare the flocks of the herds. And you recall, you know, Saul comes back, I've done what the Lord said. And Samuel says, then what do I hear in my ears, if not the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of cattle? What am I hearing? And uh, Saul starts, starts to justify himself. Samuel, Samuel says, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me. And then, especially in the... Uh, in the great statement of verse 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So the motif that carries through chapter uh, 15 and talks about Paul's rejection is the idea of listening. And there is promise then that there is going to be one who has, will come after him. In uh, verse 28, <clears throat> the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And we saw in chapter 13 where God said, the Lord has sought out himself a replacement, a man after his own heart. Now, if we're reading this the first time, we should, okay, catch up. There, there's a lot of talk about listening here. But there's also something else going on. You see, for chapters now, we're told that someone else is coming. God's rejected Saul, but he is already been preparing another person. In all these 15 chapters, we have not seen his name yet mentioned. So if we're reading this the first time, and like the people may be hearing this, there should be a sense of anticipation. Who is this anointed one to come? And in fact, in the story we'll read, we don't see David's name mentioned until the very end, uh, highlighting the suspense. All right, so we're going to read this uh, first part of chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into this. Some good stuff here. Uh, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, and I, oh, I don't know if I turn that on. There we go. I did put it up here because I'm reading out of the ESV in case you don't have that one. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, uh, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? 
If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me whom I shall declare to you. And Samuel did as the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peacefully? Peaceably. And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that will be our central text this morning. We'll go on further, though. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him stand before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Samuel made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before, before Samuel, and Samuel said to, to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all these your sons? Or are these all your sons? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent him and brought him in. And he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Father, as you uh, have anointed David for your purpose, we believe you've also anointed the writer of this book. More than that, you have anointed us through your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you, through that, would give us an understanding, not only of what you were saying to the people of Israel back then, but also through that and because of that, what you're saying to us right now. We may be like Samuel grieving over the past, lamenting how things we thought were going to turn out so good turned out so terrible. We may be like David, feeling forgotten, feel um, like Saul or, Samuel or one of the other characters in the story. I pray that you through your spirit would apply this just the way that you know that we need. Thank you, Father. Amen. Samuel was old and grieving, weighed down with regrets and cares and concerns over Israel, but also his place in it. We recall God had raised up Samuel to be some sort of a, a ruler or a judge, and at, at one point he had a dream that his sons would take up that role after him, but his sons did not walk in his ways. And the people said, no, we don't want your sons to rule over us, give us a king. Samuel was tempted to take this as a personal rejection. God told him, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Give them what they ask for. Warn them of what the king will be, especially at his worst sometimes. But do what they say. And so God was speaking to them, and, and he told him, go and take Saul and anoint him over my people. And he did so. And uh, especially in the early years, it appears that Samuel mentored or tutored Saul. And Saul started so well, but the power got to his head. 
that could see rose up within him. We see him rejecting God's words, not listening to God, even as he listens to his men who want to spare the flocks, even as he builds a monument for himself. We see what's going on in his heart a little bit. Samuel's grieving over God, over, over this. We don't know how long after this story happens that God speaks these words. I get the impression it wasn't right away. God finally says, okay, that's enough. You see, one of the ways that we see God looking differently than, than we are already is that very often we're tempted to look at the past and the way that things have not been what we wanted, the way that we had dreams and ideas and they are just not what they what we thought they would be, or maybe we achieve them, but they don't bring the fulfillment that we should. We look at our past mistakes, at the past frustrations, at the past ways others have hurt us or disappointed us. And there comes a time where God says, all right, that's enough looking back. I'm still at work here. I'm still at work. And I want you to now go on a different commission for me. And he says, I have provided for it. Literally, the word is, I have seen a son of Jesse. But the, the, the scope of the word implies more, I have seen over the situation, or I have provided in the situation. You see, while he was grieving and mourning, God had already chosen this young man. God had already been working in his heart. God says, I've got it under control. I'm going to send you to Bethlehem, for I have provided, I have seen over the next king. You'll be a son of a man named Jesse. Now, when we hear Bethlehem, probably when we hear Jesse, we have these great associations in our mind. But again, if we're back then, that's just some little backwater town in the hill country of Judah. I mean, this isn't Jerusalem. This isn't Shiloh. It's some little hick sending you there. So God sends him there. And the sons come before him, and the the town's trembling. I mean, Samuel wasn't known for his casual drop-in visits. Let's Let's have a coffee time you know, he was a severe prophet of God. And, uh, and he comes to that town, and, are, you, are you coming peacefully? He said, yeah, don't worry about this. I, I've, got a, I've got a task here, but I want you to consecrate everyone, come to the banquet here. And somewhere at this banquet, somewhere during this time, maybe it was just a diversion or maybe it was part of the activity, we're not told, but at some point he gets Jesse and says, I want you to bring your sons before me. And uh, so we can kind of, you know, picture our mind, you've got this county fair atmosphere, and these boys come before the great prophet, like, you know, prize heifers at, at this county fair, you know, and he's going to choose the, the winner. You kind of get something like that in your mind, maybe. That's fine. Uh, and he sees the first one come. Now, we have to remember, in this culture back then, to be the firstborn male was the big deal. You were the big cheese, right? You were the one who would carry on the father's work and receive the greatest inheritance, receive the land if, there was, if that was part of it. And uh, if you're the firstborn son, that was automatically a high status. Not only did the firstborn son, Eliab, have this high status, he looked like a king. There was something about his appearance. We're told in the next chapter he's a warrior already. So he's a young man accustomed to battle. He's with Saul's army in the next chapter. And uh, there's something about his appearance that looked kingly. And not only that, there was his height. He was tall. Because God says, don't look at his appearance or his height. Because when... When Saul looks at him, what goes through his mind is this. This has got to be him. <laughs> I, I know king material when I see it. But he didn't. Because God was seeing something deeper. And God says to him these words. 
don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And if I wanted to sum up our sermon in one phrase, it would be this. That God sees what we do not see and thus acts in ways that we do not expect. He says, Samuel, remember, I tried to give you an object lesson in Saul. Uh, and I tried to give Israel an object lesson in Saul about what a king should not be. And he was pretty tall, right? He looked like a king. He started well. But I'm seeing something different. Let's stop here for a second. How true is this word? Mankind, humans, look on the outward appearance. They look on the externals. But I'm looking at the heart. And we live in a time where this, I think, is probably true much more than Israel a thousand years before Christ. We look not only on the height or the appearance, but the clothes, the cars, the house, the job, the career, the success, the status. We look at the number on the scale. We judge people by their appearance, by their age. It's easy for us to get so caught up in this, partly because it surrounds us like water surrounds a fish. It just, we take it for granted. But also because we normally can't see the heart like God does. But we're reminded here that people can look good on the outside but not have a heart towards God. And there can be people who have a heart towards God who God looks at and, and, and loves deeply and yet their life is a mess. Because sometimes it's those people whose lives are the most mess that turn to God most deeply out of their need. God says, I don't want you to look on the outside. Now that's a word to us too. Because I am looking at the heart. And the first way I want us to think about this is just the way that God sees everything about us. In fact, uh, look what it says in 2 Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord, those whose heart is blameless to him. So here we're seeing the first part, that God sees our heart completely and fully. And that's what he cares about. He, he knows everything about us. He knows what we're thinking. He knows why we do what we do, while other people just see what we do at most. He knows the hidden things in our heart that are weighing us down. He knows the things that have happened to us or our weak spots that hold us back. And he sees these with sympathy and empathy when maybe no one else understands or don't care. He sees all that. Proverbs 15.3 develops the same thing. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good. Zechariah 4. And uh, this is a very fascinating passage. The context of this is the people are rebuilding the temple after their exile in, in the land of Babylon. There's just a remnant. Israel has been reduced because of their disobedience. They come back and they want to serve the Lord again. But the problem is they don't have Solomon and all his wealth. They don't have this great manpower. They have a handful of remnants drawn back. And they're trying to be obedient and build the temple. But, man, it looks nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. And, in fact, Zerubbabel, who is the leader of the movement, reminds him that though the task is there ahead of him, this mountain that they're going to clear and build a temple on, this is all going to be done by his power, not ours. 
He says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that reigns throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. The chosen capstone would be the, when, the, when the temple is completed. Sevenfold, seven eyes of the Lord. Wait, does that mean God's like this monster with seven eyes? No. Seven is the idea of fullness or completion, right? God doesn't have physical eyes like we do to begin with. This is an anthropomorphism to describe that God sees and understands. Because he doesn't have physical eyes, he sees everything, not just the things that are right there before him physically. God's perfect, full vision is watching all this. He sees everything. We come back to this point. God sees what we do not see, and thus he acts in ways we don't expect. Now, let's apply this a little bit more clearly here, a little bit more deeply. What should this matter to us? So, Samuel gets it wrong, and, but God fixes it. He, you know, he tells him to anoint David and everything. Why does this matter to us? Well, here's a couple things I see. Some of these are going to be words of challenge, but also comfort. First thing I see is this. God is never not working. God is always working, to put it more positively. God is always, always, always accomplishing his work and using people like us. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? They were, they were tripping out because he was, you know, healing people on the Sabbath, which they said, no, it's against the rules. You can't work on the Sabbath, and that's definitely working. And Jesus said to them, uh, guys, my father works until this very day. In other words, there is a kind of work, if you can call it that, that God never ceases to do. Samuel was downcast. He felt like this king experiment had failed, and his part of it had been used, you know, in, in a terrible way. And, and he had set up this king used by God, but, but then this, this king was ruining everything. And God tells him, look, I'm, I'm providing for myself a king for my people. It's under control. Even Saul has a purpose in this play. I don't know where you are in that right now. You may not feel like God is working. I mean, it's not like God's doing miracles in this. All he's doing is shaping the heart of a shepherd boy. But that's all God needs. I don't know where you are in this. Maybe you need reassurance. He understands and he will use. Or maybe you just feel like God is absent from your life. God is saying, I have provided for myself something for you. I'm watching over you. This all could also be a, a great challenge to us, right? Because we live in an age, like I said, of external appearance. We live, live in an age of hype and glamour and, and, uh, and image. And it's easy to get in our, the idea in our mind that if we look good, if things be, are going well outside, I'm getting the grades, I'm making the team, um, my job's going well, my, my security, my money is going well. Uh, it's easy to get the impression that things are okay. My life is basically turned out the way it should. We forget that God's looking on the inside. This can be a word of challenge to us because it can challenge us to say, if God sees what no one else sees, if he sees this inner part, stripping down all the things, all the facades I put up to let people think about me in a certain way. What do his eyes grasp about me? 
Did they see a heart that, like David, is a heart after him? A heart that will fail sometimes, yes, like David will do, but that genuinely wants to put himself under God and serve God's ways? Or does he see a heart like Saul? A heart that believes in God, but wants to use God to further his own agenda. In this case, the kingship or the non-doing. What does he see in my heart? This is another word of challenge to us another way, by the way. Not only does about what God sees in me, but how do I look at other people? You see, there, there's an implied contrast between the way that Samuel looks at other people and, and how God is. And uh, that's be something very challenging for us when we realize, I mean, this is Samuel we're talking about, right? We're not talking about some evil person, some schmuck. We're talking about the prophet of God who has now served God for decades. We're not told how old he is, but obviously he was around 30, 40 years to anoint, uh, anoint Saul. Probably 20 years before. Anyway, he's been serving the Lord for decades. This is the prophet of God, and he gets it wrong. So probably we are too. Okay? But the warning here to us is not to look at other people also on these external situations. Not to look at people on the outward stuff, but to be able as much as possible to value them and to, and to treasure their heart. As parents, you know, we can look at our own kids. We have this external idea of what, they, what we want their life to look like. And, and we can not have a radical acceptance of them because there's also this disappointment they're not meeting these externals. Uh, as we look at our, our friends and our neighbors, we can, we can value people on how well they keep their house, uh, on, on you know, their looks, their, their weight, their money, their career. We can value the people that we work with based on how good they are, how much talent, how much hard work they have. We can value other people in our family, our extended family. I wonder if, if God was going to say to one of us, you or I, he's going to say to you, there's someone that you're valuing on the external, but I'm working on their heart in a very deep way. Who would that be for you? Who would God say, I want you to lay aside all your, your judgments and, and your evaluations because they're not mine. I mean, after all, by worldly standards, Jesus himself wasn't a success, was he? In fact, look what Paul says about him. This is a chapter where he talks about God making us new. He says, so from now on, because of what Christ has done, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. There's that imagery of seeing again, of viewing them in a certain way. He says, you know, when we understand what God has done for us, we don't regard people by these external things anymore. We're not judging people by the, by the appearances. And, and, and you know why? He says, because I, he says we, but we even judge Jesus this way. Paul was never a person who was opposed to God. He was never a person who just wanted to do his own thing. He was strictly disciplined, very religious, but he got it completely wrong. At the most important question of all, whether this Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be God was actually God, he completely got it wrong, and he was so, so angry at the delusion that he thought Jesus was causing that he persecuted even to death some of the Jesus followers to keep them from spreading this, what he, he thought was his heir. Can you imagine 
then when, what he must have thought when he's on that road to Damascus and God booms out of heaven and blinds his eyes because he was blind, he couldn't see. That's what the, the symbolism there was. And God leads him and says, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Jesus of Nazareth. And three days later, he received his sight through the prophet of God. And his eyes were opened. Because I looked at Jesus Christ, and I looked at the person who I now know was the very Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, higher than any angel, going through whom the whole universe was brought into a being, and I labeled him a loser. I labeled him a false messiah because I saw him die a criminal's death, and that wasn't what I thought the Messiah was going to look like. I got it completely wrong. And he says, because of that, you don't look at anybody from a worldly point of view. Oh, that that were true of us, right? That that were true of us. Like I said, we live in this world of external valuations like fish and water. We take it for granted. We don't even think about it until we hear the word of God coming like this. God sees what we don't see, and thus he acts in ways that we do not expect. One last thought here of application. And in regards to this last point, (laughs) thus he acts in ways that we don't expect or understand. You see, if it was just about these external blessings, God could have done that a million ways. God had a bigger idea, a bigger plan than Samuel or Saul or David ever understood. Even though I think David came to understand some of it. Saul was used by God to show, he's almost like looking back, and Saul becomes a, a symbol of his precursor, Adam. Humanity at its best fails apart from God. Precursor and forerunner of Jesus Christ. They didn't get that. They didn't get that God would save the world through the line of David. Do you think David understood when he was cast out to the, to the flock, when his father even forgot to call him in, when Samuel the prophet came? He said, oh, well, he, you know, we still got the youngest one out there. When he wasn't the firstborn or the secondborn or the thirdborn or even all the way down to the seventhborn. I mean, seventh would be cool, too. Seventh is the idea of fullness, perfection. No, he's the eighthborn, the leftover. And yet God was working in ways that he did not see at all. Here's the thing. God will not show you how he will use the very simple ways of your obedience and your heart turning towards him. He won't show it to you probably because, I'm speculating, I think it would be too much for us. Like staring into the sun, it would be too much for us to take in when we see the glory of what he will use in the future. So this is a challenge to us. Saul was someone whose heart began well, but he ended up with a heart after himself. God was providing a man for himself. How does God want to apply this to you? Are you tempted to evaluate yourself based upon these external standards and feel like a failure? Are you tempted to evaluate others? Are you tempted to look at the lack of apparently God's moving, you don't see it, and wonder if he's really involved or in your life at all? Is God saying to you, is your heart still as much toward me as it was? 
Maybe things are going great on the outside, but where's your heart? That's what I'm looking at. That's what I value. Why don't you close your eyes with me for a minute here? As Mike and, and Janice lead us in this last hymn, Be Thou My Vision. This is a song of basically offering ourselves to God in this way. It's not a song saying, I'm going to get everything right from now on. I'm never going to sin again. By my own willpower, I'm just going to follow God completely. No, it's a song much wiser than that. It's a song saying, God, would you help me to keep my eyes on you? And then as you read the verses through, it's also a song saying, with my eyes on you, help my heart to be given towards you as well. Is this a song you want to sing? This isn't a question whether you ever sin again or not. You will. But right now, is God saying to you, are you willing at this next stage of your life, are you willing <clears throat> to give yourself, yourself and your heart to me again? If so, I will take this song as your prayer, and I will honor that. Thank you, Lord. You don't ask for our perfection, but for our heart. A heart turned towards you, and then our failure comes back to you. Thank you. Would you tune our hearts to sing your praise to this song? Amen. Please stand. <coughs>